Luke chapter 4, we're looking at verses 31 through 44 this morning. And in these verses, we are introduced to the miracles of Jesus. For us to be able to read about the miracles of Jesus, to be able to ponder them. Do you guys ever imagine the miracles of Jesus? I try to think of what it must have been like for someone who was dead to come back to life. Who couldn't see to all of a sudden be able to see again. This is truly a wonderful thing for us to be able to imagine. Now being the intellectual Baptists that we are, proudly non-charismatic, we can often overlook the miracles and how important and essential they were in Scripture. We joke about ourselves because we focus so much on the written word that we're like the bland leading the bland. But I encourage you to get excited a little bit. Don't, don't give yourself a heart attack. Don't give the person near you a heart attack. But be excited a little bit as we think about Jesus did some excitable things. Peter's mother-in-law in this text is sick with a fever. She's delirious with this fever. And Jesus causes the fever to come out of her. And she gets up and she starts serving the people in the house. A person is at the synagogue. This is not some hobo under a bridge. This is somebody at the synagogue who is possessed by a demon. It's possible we've got someone in there in our midst today possessed with a demon. Now, I don't believe a believer who's possessed with the Holy Spirit can be possessed with a demon. But I also don't believe every single one of you are believers. Some of you testified to me that you're not. Some of you think you are and you're not because somebody has told you that you are because you've done some religious ritual, but you do not know Jesus Christ, and I want you to know Jesus Christ. So I tell you that hard truth. But there could be somebody right in our midst today, dressed for church, teeth brushed. We get the wrong idea. We get like monsters in our head, and we think of people who are demon-possessed. You'd be surprised of how that really works in spiritual warfare. Jesus had eyes to see it. I don't claim to have those eyes to see it. And Jesus told that demon, come out of them. And the demon had to obey. This is wonderful. It's miraculous. All throughout this section, Luke will teach us about the authority and the power of Jesus because of who Jesus is. Now, when we think about authority and power, I think you understand it from everyday life. And different people exercise their authority in different ways. If you're the general in the military, you give out orders and you enforce military discipline. A teacher shows authority by giving grades, by sending students to the office. The traffic cop is going to give you a ticket on the way home. Exercises authority by using that speed gun And that citation book to say, you're going faster than you're supposed to, now pay the tax. I mean, fine. The IRS exercises authority through conducting audits and assessing penalties. And here we find Jesus exercising his authority in the the simplest way we can imagine, really. Just by saying the word. With his words, he exercises his authority. Now, this record that we're going to read is divided for us geographically, so I wanted to use that for our outline, and you've been given that there in your bulletin. He performs miracles down at the synagogue and then over at Peter's house, so we'll use those for our headings today. As we think of miracles, I want to give you some references here. William MacDonald, he wrote this. He said, all the physical miracles of Jesus are pictures of similar miracles he performs in the spiritual realm. So the physical 
are illustrative of the spiritual, is what McDonald is saying here. I think that's useful for us to consider it. We are not trying to demean the miracle. We're not trying to demean the importance and the power and the love shown through physical healing. But I don't ever want us to dwell so on the physical that we begin to miss the spiritual. Jesus fed 5,000 in a miraculous way. Yes, it was because their bellies were full or hungry and needed to be filled. And that shows great love, doesn't it? They were hungry and he fed them. But that wasn't the end all. He wanted to do it for a spiritual purpose. Daryl Bach says it this way. He gives us three thoughts here. He says, first, miracles are real events that evidence Jesus' authority. Second, miracles are audiovisuals of deeper realities. In other words, they're not merely events for events' sake. They picture something more important. And then third, miracles unveil the deep cosmic struggle between the forces of evil and Jesus. Boy, we must never forget that. When the word is being preached, we should expect there to be a raging spiritual battle going on in the midst. When the gospel is being shed, when or spread, when God is being worshipped, in all of these times, especially in times of magnified godness, we should expect a magnified opposition from the powers of Satan. Some have said, well, we don't live in a day and age anymore where it doesn't seem like we see demon possession as much as we did before. And theories are abound. Well, there's more people on the earth now, so the, but statistically it doesn't seem like as much. I think probably we see it the most in the life of Christ because this was during the time of the life of Christ on earth. I think that was the time where Satan kind of gathered his forces and, and went to work the hardest. I could be wrong on that, but... Nevertheless, we have a passage here on the miracles of Jesus. And we study the miracles of Jesus for how they teach us about His power, about His authority, and about His love. Never forget that Jesus is always expressing His love in the performing of miracles. But they are also full of His power and His authority. And we're going to focus on those the most today. In all of this, we learn for our time that ministry done in God's way in God's time, at God's place, brings amazing results from those who witness that ministry. So let's begin in verse 31, down at the synagogue. Let's pray, and then we'll read together. Lord, we're thankful for time together with the church and your word. We thank you that your word is powerful, that your word is the authority. And so we ask you to use your word to sanctify your church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 31 reads, And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. So notice the authority of Christ revealed in these verses. We first see that he had the authority to teach. And Luke records for us here that the people were completely astonished. They were amazed. The Greek word is expliso. And that Greek word carries with it this meaning to be or to become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. To illustrate that for you, how many of you stayed up late and watched the Braves last night? Did anybody TiVo it? You don't know what happened yet? I'm about to ruin it for you. Sorry, Waylon, I'm going to ruin it for you. The Braves are going to the World Series. Woo, yay. 
Now that was calm, and some of you are like, well, what, what does that have to do with Jesus' miracles? Well, <laughs> it's been since 1999, so. <laughs> but you would not have believed. My sons got very excited last night, but worse than them was Aunt Radonna. She lost her mental composure. I didn't know you could jump so high, Aunt Radonna. This is the idea here, is Luke records that Jesus taught with authority and they were astonished at his doctrine. They were beyond amazement. They were so amazed that they were becoming delirious about what it was he was saying to them. They'd never heard anything like this. All of their other teachers spoke with delegated authority. When they taught the Bible, they spent much of their time quoting from other teachers. Their theology came secondhand. We, we experience that now through preaching. I'm not Jesus. I just herald to you the words of Jesus. And I explain you theology. And I try to use other scholars and commentators to use their words, which are much better formed than mine are, to help illustrate and under, help us understand that theology. But Jesus comes along and he preaches to them with not secondhand authority, with not secondary information, but with him being the primary authority speaking his own words to his people. In fact, one rabbi said of the practice of that day, he said, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. This was the state of things at that time. So in comes Jesus teaching in their synagogues and they teach with authority. He teaches with his own authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, Mark says about it this way. He says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Jesus did not just preach about God. Jesus was God preaching. It's a big difference. So when he preached, what he said was the very word of God in all of its almighty authority. So we see first that Jesus had authority with his words. Secondly, as we consider the miracles of Jesus, we see that Jesus had authority with demons. Verse 33, And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art. The Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and he heard him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and a power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place in the country. Roundabout. Now, I'll make a point before I get into what I want to say here about this, that Jesus tells him to be quiet. He says in verse 35, hold thy peace. Why does he want him to be quiet? Because he is pronouncing who Jesus is. He says, I know thee, verse 34, who thou art, the Holy One of God. Again, he's going to do that later in the chapter with some other demons. It's, it's unique to me that it takes demons and ignorant by ignorant, I don't mean stupid or dumb or moronic. I mean people who were not educated in this area. Ignorant fishermen to profess Jesus as the Christ when the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious scholars of the day, struggled with that very fact. But it wasn't time for him to be revealed as this. So the demon says, 
You're the Holy One. You're Him. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And he, he commands him to be quiet because it wasn't time for that to be re- revealed. That's a, that is an important theological point here, but it's, it, it goes aside from what we want to say. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus had authority over the demons. He had the power to perform exorcisms, to cast out demons. Now, the big problem in American church in, in today's world, because at some point someone decided to make a movie called The Exorcist. Anybody you seen this? Familiar with it? And then subsequent movies began to be made about that and along those lines. And all of a sudden, Americans were not in, in, uh, instructed by their Bibles how an exorcism should take place. They were instructed by Hollywood. Now, just so that we're all clear here, what's right, the movie or the word? Yeah, all right, just being sure here. So you can imagine whatever you want to imagine was going on during this time. And the Catholics can continue to practice what the movie shows to practice, but I'm good with just what the Word says. Amen. I mean, it's pretty clear here, isn't it? There was a devil. He cried out with a loud voice, not just randomly. It wasn't jar- garble. It wasn't gibberish. What if, he didn't cry out until Jesus came on the scene. And then why did he cry out? He said, leave us alone. The devil knew that his time was up in that frame of a body that he was inhabiting. He was quiet until then. He was mixing in. So much so that he was going to worship on the Sabbath with the people. He seemed completely normal. But but Jesus knew who he was. And Jesus didn't do anything but say in rebuke to him, hold your peace, be quiet, come out of him. And that was it. And the demon, it it says it threw the body into the midst of the people there and came out and, and heard him not. So he had, the man had the spirit of an unclean demon. Jesus rebuked him. And later in the passage, verse 41, we read that demons came out of many of the other people that Jesus healed. And the devils also came out of many, crying out, saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Now I want us to be clear on what Scripture is referring to here. This man was possessed physically possessed, literally possessed by a fallen angel. A spiritual being cast down to earth as judgment, under judgment, eternal judgment, had entered into the physical structure of this man. Now that part, you'd have to talk to somebody smarter than me to figure out how that works. But it happens. It's like there's two consciences inside of a person. And one is more powerful, so it takes over. This supernatural being was trying to cause this man spiritual and physical harm. I also want you to be clear here, while this was literal, it was physical, it was a possession, this was not ordinary mental disease. Something the church has gotten wrong a lot in tr- throughout church history. If my leg is sick, you pray for me and give me some balm. If my chest is sick, you tell me to take this syrup and drink it. I said syrup because some of you I've learned don't use NyQuil. Y'all use other things. That's still kind of syrupy. But you tell me to drink it and you say this will make your chest feel better. If I've got even a headache, you say take these Tylenol pills and they'll make your headache go away. But if my brain gets sick, if my brain gets tired or my brain gets depressed or my brain becomes 
overexerted in a way that it causes me to act in ways that I otherwise wouldn't. All of a sudden, we kind of get weird about that in the church. And instead of saying, take this medicine or go see this doctor or let me help you in this way, we kind of get odd about it. This was not a man with a mental disease. This was a man with a possession of a demon. There is the difference in Scripture, and it is distinguished for us here. Say that to say not everyone battling mental illness is under satanic control. For sure, demons will cause mental illness or even worsen mental illness. Someone who is demon-possessed may even have outward manifestations that are similar to psychological disorders. But the origin of the oppression is different. One is straight satanic, demon possession. The other could be a multitude of other things. When someone dies, what kind of mental sickness do you get? Grief. It's called grief. It's diagnosable. It happens all the time. We know that it's there. Some of you, when it rains outside, you get a mental sickness called what? Sad. Now me, I like rainy days. I guess that makes so who else is with me? You like a good rainy day. Yeah, I love I love them. That means I don't have to work outside. Does that show how lazy I am? <laughs> it means I get to stay inside on purpose and read books. And that you, you guys not gave me this nice office over here, two huge windows. And one of the things I love to do is sit and look out those windows. This week it was great orange and yellow leaves were just falling the whole week. And I'm sitting there reading my books. Me and Spurgeon looking out that window together. See, I like a rainy day. We're all a little different in that, but we have diagnosable things that we say about when our, our minds, our brains get sick. This is different. People who are demon-possessed are dominated by an inward, personal evil. That's why it's so important to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and to be daily walking in the Spirit so that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh and certainly that of Satan. Now, in some Christian circles, it has become popular to attribute every sin to a particular demon. People who think too highly of themselves have the demon of pride. People who eat too much have the demon of gluttony. I was talking to a, a guy. Oh, he wouldn't mind me telling his story, I don't think. It was Liz's professor from college. I was at your guy's wedding reception. What was his name? What? Jerry? I was talking to Reverend Jerry. Who teaches what classes? Church history or theology or something? Taught her the life of Christ when she was in Bible college. And I'm sitting there talking to Jerry, and he said, Have you ever been part of a healing line? And I said, No, sir, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> Only thing we line up for is offerings and food. <laughs> and he said, Well, I was preaching at this church one time, and that was part of their regular practice. And people would come up, and the elders would lay hands on them, and they would bind powers was kind of what they were supposed to be doing like i guess binding demon possession what's the problem there who's theologically minded enough to understand the problem here these are believers should demons be in them if demons are in them should an elder be praying that the demon be bound or that the person be filled with the spirit right i mean this is the thing here in fact jesus addressed this he told his disciples well you you can cast out that demon 
But if you got nothing to fill the house with, he's going to go get seven of his friends, and they're going to fill that clean house up that you just, you just swept the floors, and they're going to clean it back up again there. So a lot of ins and outs of this. But the joke is, <laughs> Jerry said he was up there, and they were binding these powers. And he said, the, and if you're a fat man, welcome to the club here. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But he said the fattest man he'd ever seen walked up to him, and he was thinking to himself the whole, because people were saying, you know, bind the demon of laziness, bind the demon of pornography, bind the demon, whatever their sins were. And this guy came up to him and said, bind the demon of gluttony. And Jerry said, I laid my hand on this guy's head, and I said out loud, Lord, bind the demon of gluttony. But in my heart, I was praying, God, bind this man's jaws. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, that's so offensive. I forget we live in a politically correct world. But all of a sudden, we, we use this to, to excuse our sin, don't we? That becomes church practice. Philip Ryken, the former pastor of 10th Press in Philadelphia, said, When people talk this way, I have the demon of pride, I have the demon of gluttony. They are really blaming Satan for their own sinful nature. Their sins are not the direct result of de- demonic control, but simply the expression of their own sinful desires. You can't stop that sinning, not because a demon is causing you to sin. It's because your flesh likes to sin, and you want to exercise self-control over that sinning. How do I know that? How do I know that, Brother Doug? What's that? Yes, that's exactly right. I know all about the demon of gluttony because I eat too much. It's not a demon. It's my own self-will. So this was a part of Jesus' ongoing war with the devil. Wanted to give those clarifying thoughts there. It's not always a mental illness. It could just be demonic possession. And a lot of times we give credit to demons where it's just our own sinful flesh. In this war, Jesus had authority over the demons, which he exercised simply by speaking his word, which is what Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress about God's victory over Satan. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to him abideth. The same word that Jesus used to defeat the devil in the wilderness, the word of God, he now used to cast out demons in the synagogue. Jesus had true spiritual authority. All he had to do was to say the word and the demon came out. He also had the authority to heal. Now, this moves us from the synagogue over to Peter's house. Verse 38, And he rose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. So Jesus taught the people the word in the synagogue. He triumphed over their demons, but he also had the power to touch their bodies. Now, we talked about power and authority and love. And I hope you see the love of Jesus as he casts a demon off of a guy. I know it's an an indwelling, but I, I think of it in my mind as I think of spiritual warfare. I think of this person just trying to live their life, saved or unsaved. It had to be an unsaved person, unfilled with the Spirit. This was prior to the time of the Spirit coming, though, as we know it now. But I think about it in our day. Here's this person, and it's almost, you ever given somebody a piggyback ride? You ever given somebody a piggyback ride you didn't want to? They just jump on. 
My kids, it never fails. When they're little, yeah, but that's a thing, right? Jump on dad. But then they all get to an age where I have to like stop them and be like, all right, you're, you're big enough now you can hurt somebody. For my kids, it's usually three or four years, years old. They're, they're awfully large. But I have to say, to, you know, don't, you can't do that. But boy, I just think of this guy, he's demon-possessed. He's trying to do the right things, isn't he? He's going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, but he's toting around this demon on his back. And Jesus, with power and authority, but also with love, says, leave him alone. Get off of him. That's awfully loving. And we see that even more so here with Peter's mother-in-law. It seems that her gifting was hospitality, and everybody was coming over to her house. After the Sabbath, after the sun would have set, they could have gone about with what they called work. They couldn't have done anything that wasn't pre-prepared prior to that time, according to their culture at that time. But she was sick with a fever in bed. The worst thing for a person who loves to serve is to be sick and not be able to serve. And Jesus, out of love for, for Peter, for Peter's wife, they were concerned about their sick loved one. And then out of love for Peter's mother-in-law here, who herself was sick and couldn't be serving, commands this sickness to come out of her. Speaking of that, it's so good to see Miss Marion here today. Brother Jim and Miss Marion back with us. They've been sick, but they're feeling better. So we're praising the Lord. Jesus had the power to touch their bodies. And he demonstrated this power here in Peter's house. It reads as if he stood over her bed and commanded the fever to come out. He had the same power over disease as he had over demons. Both the physical world and the spiritual world were under Jesus' divine authority. All he had to do was rebuke the fever and it was gone. She's totally and she's immediately better instantly. Her cure was complete. And Luke proves this for us by showing us what she does next. Verse 39 says, he stood over her, he rebuked the fever, the fever left her, and immediately she rose and ministered unto them. Now we use the term minister now to talk about what a preacher does, but minister means served, and when you're ministering in your home there, she did what a lady typically does in a home when there's people. Going to get you something to drink, you want a comfortable seat to sit in, tells her husband to get out of his recliner to let some other guy sit there. Just so offensive. It's my chair. Just kidding. I don't have the gift of hospitality, evidently. She immediately gets to serving. This also is a clue to you and I. What should we do when Jesus touches us with his healing power? We should get up and we should start to serve him by serving others. And most of all, I want you to know from this, Jesus has complete control and total authority over the diseases and the disabilities of the human body. Well, news of that spread quickly. Look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers' diseases brought them unto him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Presumably, the reason people waited until the sunset was because of the Sabbath. They didn't want to break the Sabbath. Peter's home then becomes a house of healing as Jesus cured them all by the power of his healing touch. I want to say to you, church, with this is our proof text, that Jesus still performs miracles today. He also works to answer our prayers for healing through the normal means of medical care. 
Every time I'm at a hospital praying for someone, I make it a point. It's, it's, if they're in the room, now if they're busy, I don't go to the hall and drag them in there. But the staff that are there helping you, that I'm coming to pray for Jesus to heal you, I don't want to under to, to demean these people who are, you know, they're up there working to heal you at the same time, right? It's both. And we're thankful for hospital staff and nurses and doctors and all of these things. When they can be useful, it's a wonderful thing. And I'll typically say to them, we're going to pray. You want to pray with us? And I'll pray for them too. So we understand Jesus can heal. We also understand that Jesus answers prayer to heal. We also understand that Jesus heals through the normal means of medical care. How many of you would say, I believe Jesus could heal a headache? How many of you believe that a pain-relieving pill could heal a headache? Well, don't, don't overthink the word heal there. We understand it's getting rid of the symptom force and all that. All right? How many of you are going to say, well, based off this passage this morning, we're throwing out all the Tylenol at the house, and every time our headaches, we're just going to pray and ask Jesus to heal, and if he don't, well, no, you're going to go ahead and take the pill. That's common sense, isn't it? This is a slippery slope that I don't want to go much further down. I just want to make the point here that Jesus heals through normative means at times. That, that's as far as I need you to go there. The, the rest of that, no, just ask Dr. Fauci. He'll explain it to you. These jokes have gotten too easy, haven't they? I mean, it's just, all right. So Jesus has healing authority. We should pray in his name when we are sick. We do this in our home. The kids get sick. We give them some medicine, and, and we pray for them too. We do both. I'm not going to forbid my child medicine as an act of faith. Now, should a human adult with cognitive reasoning want to do that? That's their own business. But as the adult in charge of these children until they are old enough to make decisions on their own, we understand when that is, right? When kids still need to be told don't play in the street, they still need to be spanked, and they still need to be guided in how to live their lives. They don't need to choose their own names. They don't need to choose their own gender. They don't need to choose what they do or don't do with the, day of the, day, the hours of the day. The parents get to make those decisions for them. That's highly biblical. Anything outside of that is actually abuse. Saying, well, we just like to let them make their own way and do their own thing. You're abusing that child doing that. Amen. But Jesus has a healing authority, so we pray in his name when we're sick. But we recognize that God at times chooses not to heal us. Who could testify this morning to say, let's just stick to the physical ailment world. I have or have had a physical ailment. I asked God to heal me, and he did not heal me of that thing. A couple of you. How many of you would say, I, I have actually asked God to heal me, and he did heal me of that thing? All right, there's, some of, there's a God of you there, for sure. I would use um, Eric and Jason were good examples of this this morning. Do you guys ever ask God to heal your ears? No. Jason? Yep. All right. And you're still having kidney stones, Jason? Yep. And God has chosen not to. So there are times where God chooses not to heal. Now, Revelation 21.4 teaches us that there will come a day where there will be no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. The curse will be lifted, and all will be well again in God's creation. But for now, we still live in a fallen world. 
One where disability and disease are a part of sin's curse. Eventually, all of our prayers for healing will be answered. But this will not happen until Jesus comes again. Sometimes God even uses our physical difficulties to do His gracious work in our lives. And this is where I was going, and I should have told Eric ahead of time. I don't want to embarrass these guys. Brother Eric cannot, cannot hear or speak, but God has put him in the ministry. He's an ordained minister. He's been to seminary. He pastors those who also cannot hear. Me, I, I can't speak the language. I can't speak American Sign Language, but Eric can. And God uses what we would call a disability. God uses that ability in his life for his glory to those who need that there. And I get, I get that these are hard things to talk about and to say, but we must be sure that everything is to the good pleasure of God's will and we give him glory in all those things. The life of the Christian follows the pattern of the life of Christ in which suffering is the road to glory. But well, we end with verse 42 through 44. When it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. You can understand that, right? Here's this guy who just made everything well. We, we were sick and we're not sick anymore. People had demons and they don't have demons anymore. Why would he leave? Don't, he can't leave. We need him to stay. And he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. So as we think of the miracles of Jesus, we see that Jesus shows his authority in three different areas, all by his word. He exercised his teaching authority by speaking an authoritative word. He exercises authority over demons by speaking rebuke. He exercises authority over disease by speaking and telling the fever to come out. God's words have the power to transform people's lives. God's words have the power to triumph even over supernatural evils. God's words have the power to overturn the effects of illness on the body. His words carry divine authority over all of His creation and even over the powers of Satan and hell. I stress that point so hard this morning to say to you, This is how the gospel spreads. They said, stay and heal. And Jesus said, no, I don't need to stay here. He said, there's other places that I've got to go and preach the kingdom of God. Because I've been sent to do so. At the end of Jesus' time on earth, he gathered his followers together. And he reminded them, all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And I send you under that authority to now go and make disciples of every creature of every nation. All the people of all the nations of the world. Go and make disciples. So as we see Jesus' authority over demons, and over sickness, and His authority in teaching with the Word, we know that it all is according to His words. That's how we came into existence. And God said, let there be, and there was. This is how the Gospel spreads. So the church's first priority is preach the gospel. Oh, let us stand firm in our spiritual armor against the powers of Satan. But let us first be sure our mouths are speaking gospel truth. 
J.C. Ryle warned churches in this regard because we, we seem to have the, the, the capacity to, to want the, the temporal and the superficial more than we want the eternal and that which can't always be seen except with eyes of faith. We'd rather be physically healed than have our sins forgiven is what I mean to say. It's easy to, to gravitate toward that which is charismatic and away from that which is intellectual. J.C. Ryle says, Beware of despising preaching. In every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument for the awakening of sinners and the edifying of the saints. The days when there has been little or no preaching have been days when there was little or no good done in the church. Let us hear sermons in a prayerful and reverent frame of mind and remember that they are the principal engines which Christ himself employed when he was upon earth. You want to see healing more than you've ever seen healing before? It isn't going to come through some manifestation of working up your flesh. It is going to come through the discipline of preaching the truths of God's Word and receiving that preaching and living by those principles given to us in Scripture. Then you will see a powerful healing ministry inside of a local church. So why is the prayer list so full? We've not submitted ourselves fully to the doctrines of Scripture and live so heavily within those things that when we say, Lord, please heal, that we can accomplish what Jesus could do on earth when he was here in his name. Many would say, no, it's because of your neglect to heal or to cast out or to pray for these things. I don't think that's the case at all. Anybody just openly admit this morning and say, yeah, that's true. I'm really not ever sincere when I ask for God to heal somebody. I just say it because I'm supposed to. That's not a thing, is it? No. If you're going to pray, Lord, please heal, you're awfully sincere about that thing. And anyone of us this morning who knew how to just do it, as Jesus did, to just say, fever, come out of her. Cancer, come out of them. COVID, get away from them. Anybody who could do that would do that. I, I laughed and then I cried when early on the coronavirus thing Kenneth Copeland got on TV and him and some other guys began to act foolish and command the demon of COVID to, to leave. It didn't work very well, did it? How many people have died now from this virus? Shame on those guys. They sh- what they should have done is got up before their people, opened the word, and gave God's authoritative word to those people, which even if God didn't heal them would have helped them as they'd gone through the sickness. And then if it had been God's will to heal, he would have healed. All authority has been given to Jesus. And he exercises this authority simply by speaking his word. Do you believe in the power of his word? Does it have the same authority and power and priority for us now that it had for Jesus then? If it does, then we would read it more than we do. We would hear it more than we do. We would study it more than we do. We would memorize it more than we do. We would do everything in our power to share it with others. The Word will be in the center of our lives, exercising a controlling influence over what we think and what we say and what we do. It will be the main thing that we want to share with others if we truly believe in the power of God's Word. It will cause us to have a pressing desire for people to hear God's Word. We'll encourage others to read it. We'll invite them to study it. We will bring them to hear it preached 
and we will help to carry it all throughout the world. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we believe that your word has the power to heal. So we pray that you would heal. We long for the day when all will be healed. Father, we believe that your word has the power over Satan and all of his minions. So we use your word in times of spiritual warfare. Lord, we thank you for the authority of your word, the one absolute in all of heaven and earth, the thing that never has changed, never will change. It remains the same. It is you with us here even now. So, Father, help us this morning to be revived, to be reformed upon the importance of the Word of God in our individual lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our study groups, in our work days, in our school days. Everything that we do should involve prayer and the Word being led of your Holy Spirit. Forgive us, Father, that we often pull it out on Sunday and dust it off and we hold it up during the sermon and try not to fall asleep and then we put it away for another week until we need it again. Oh, Father, help us to wear out the Bibles. Use them up and have to get more. God, help us to rely solely on the authority of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that we would see more healing. I pray that we would see more demons cast out. Oh, Father, we, we evermore live in a time where it, there's no other answer than people are being controlled by devils to kill babies, to steal and lie and cheat, to control and manipulate. Lord, I pray that we would see more demons cast out. But Lord, help us to see here this morning that it's only going to come as we give ourselves more and more and more to Your Word. And as we learn to trust, not in our own wisdom, not in our own words, not in our own ways, but solely just in the Word. When our answer always, when faced with a question, when faced with healing and sickness and demons and all of this else is, well, the Word of God says. God, I pray that you would help us to have the same devotion that Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, had in His own life. He depended upon the Word. Help us to be ever so dependent. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.